1949, a little Canadian island off of the coast of Nova Scotia declared itself to be its own country. Calling itself the Principality of Outer Baldonia, it quickly developed all of the trappings of an independent nation. It had its own currency, had its own postage stamps, its own flag, its own coat of arms, boasting on it pictures of a tuna fish, a sheep, and a smiling lobster. And it soon became, in the words of reporter Harry Bruce, one of the zaniest hoaxes in the history of international affairs. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. In 1949, Russell Arundel was fishing for tuna in the waters of Soldier's Rip, which is about as far southwest as you can get off the far corner of Nova Scotia, when a storm hit his boat. Halifax-based writer Harry Bruce later wrote in 1977, A squall blew up Arundel's vessel, took shelter in the lee of a flat-top, storm-tossed and utterly treeless island called Outer Bald Tusket. It's about four acres in area, its abrupt, symmetrical cliffs make it look vaguely like a desert tableland. But any similarity between Outer Baldy, as the locals called it, and warm parts of the world end right there. Before it became Outer Baldonia, the island, if it was known for anything, was mostly known for how it was a popular refuge for birds, including being an important nesting ground for several rare breeds. All of that changed when Russell Arundel landed there in that storm. In the words of reporter Harry Bruce, Arundel saw something in Outer Baldy that no one else had seen. He actually liked it. And so Russell Arundel bought it in 1949 for the grand sum of $750. He began construction on what he called a castle, although most people might describe it as a fishing lodge. It measured 20 feet by 30 feet, and it was constructed of stone. Some bewildered newspapers reported the news of the new country that July. The Moncton Transcript announced that Off the spray-swept shores of southeastern Nova Scotia, a kingdom is in the making. That newspaper went on to report that Each guide would be made an admiral, and each member a prince. And the newspaper article concluded by remarking there was no comment from the Nova Scotia government. Russell Arundel issued a Declaration of Independence for the Principality of Outer Baldonia, which was published in the Montreal Standard newspaper. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that fishermen are a race alone, that fishermen are endowed with the following inalienable rights, the right to lie and be believed, the right of freedom from question, nagging, shaving, Interruption, women, taxes, politics, war monologues, cant and inhibitions, the right to applause, vanity, flattery, praise, and self-inflation, the right to swear, lie, drink, gamble, and silence, the right to be noisy, boisterous, quiet, pensive, expensive and hilarious, the right to choose company and the right to be alone. The right to sleep all day and stay up all night. Know ye 
that these rights being inalienable and self-evident and contrary to the social customs of the world, making fishermen a race separate and apart from the other races. As I'm sure you figured out after the so-called Declaration of Independence, this whole thing was a joke. An extremely elaborate and extremely expensive joke, but a joke nonetheless. It was a hobby of a bunch of wealthy American businessmen who would come up to Nova Scotia's south shore to fish for the enormous blue fin tuna. The massive creatures could weigh up to 800 pounds, the fish I mean, and were very plentiful back then. Now, due to declining fish stocks that are largely the result of industrialized overfishing, the bluefin tuna is relatively rare. Russell Arundel and his buddies, by the way, abhorred the industrialized overfishing and preferred to do it the old-fashioned way. By bringing their personal yachts up from their mansions in Boston, New York City, and Washington DC and hiring local guides to help them fish. The Moncton Transcript's travel reporter, Fraser Robb, visited his friend Ronald Wallace, who was a member of the Yarmouth Yacht Club and was also the ambassador of the new nation of Outer Baldonia. His full title was actually Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary to Canada. He reported that a long-legged brunette is now chief advisor to the ambassador. And that has to be one of the strangest descriptions I've ever heard for a dog. The chief advisor in Outer Baldonia was a three-year-old Irish setter named Mike, whose hobbies included barking at the squeaking sound that that reporter's fountain pen made as he wrote. The ambassador told the reporter with a shrug. There was just a little sense in the message Arundel was trying to sell. The idea of a country free from interference from outside and a minimum of government involvement in personal lives. The Principality of Outer Baldonia devoted a remarkable amount of time, energy, and money into all of the trappings of a modern nation-state. They developed a flag for Outer Baldonia, a blue tuna in a white circular crest on a blue-green background. They boasted their own currency, called the tunar, having gold and silver coins minted, boasting, on the side with the head on it, saying, Russell I, Prince of Princes. They also created and printed paper banknotes, which started at 25,000 tunar, and featured a scowling face with enormous ears on it of William J. Fleming the Good, Prince of Princes, who it was, it seems, an entirely fictional person. This intricately designed tunar note, bearing the slogan, The War on Poverty, was declared to be worth more than the American dollar. In fact, it was actually declared to be the most valuable currency in the whole world. All this declaring, of course, came from the princes of Outer Baldonia themselves, and nobody else ever recognized this money. Although, these tuner coins actually could be quite valuable on their own, since they were actually minted with pure gold. Lately, even today, they are quite considerably more valuable than their face value because they are collector's items. The dates on this money began with the year 1 OB, which was 1948. Twenty years later, Russell Arundel explained the years to the Argyle Lodge. The calendar used is not Gregorian, but Baldonian. So, 
Since the year of Outer Baldi's transformation in 1948, the calendar now reads OB20. Please, oh no, do not mistakenly write it 20BO, since that transposition connoted something most unpleasant if you believe your TV. Outer Baldonia even had its own army, the Knights of the Bluefin, who, in the words of their Princes of Princes, Russell Arundel, should war or threat of war come to Outer Baldonia's shores, we stand ready to stamp it out. The island was defended by a fleet of eight star admirals. That's a very impressive amount of stars, as American admirals can only get up to four stars. These admirals were local Nova Scotian fishermen guides, who, for their part, don't seem to have had much in the way of opinions on the whole saga. The Principality of Outer Baldonia also counted amongst its citizens some very big names, like Prince Alban Berkeley and Prince Harry Truman. You might recognize those two princes from their day jobs as the Vice President and the President of the United States. The first official recognition for the Principality of Outer Baldonia came from the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company when it listed Outer Baldonia, Principality of, in its phone book. It was actually Russell Arundel's phone number. The first ever inquiry received came from the National Geographic Society, who wanted to know the country's exact longitude and latitude. Ronald Wallace, that was the ambassador with the long-legged brunette as his advisor, later remarked in the year OB28 that he still had a file of official Baldonian letters, stamps, and legal papers that look like they came out of the London Foreign Office or the Office of the Queen's Secretary. By the time of that interview, the former ambassador of Outer Baldonia had left the world of imaginary politics to move into the realm of actual real-world politics. He had, at that time of the interview, been elected as Halifax MLA for the Liberal Party, and he would later go on to become Halifax's longest-serving mayor. He remarked to a reporter, I was just looking the other night at a picture, the official ambassador's picture, which shows me looking at a globe of the world wearing a suit with a rose in my lapel and wearing glasses. I don't even wear glasses. Notably, neither the governments of Canada or of Nova Scotia ever seemed to have an opinion on this new breakaway nation on their shores choosing instead to ignore the whole strange saga completely. Although, you kind of do have to ask yourself how they would have reacted if that Declaration of Independence came from, let's say, instead of wealthy Americans, oh, I don't know, local indigenous people. Despite the tight lips from the government, the Canadian media, though, were firmly in on the joke. They would play around with including breaking news reports from Outer Baldonia in their newspapers, like this 1956 report in the Evening Times Globe. All is peaceful in Outer Baldonia. In the midst of this international snarling, consider today the good news from the Principality of Outer Baldonia. All is calm and peaceful. While it was certainly all a joke, Russell Arundel seemed to take it at least somewhat seriously. Ronald Wallace, the Baldonian ambassador with the long-legged brunette advisor, who would go on to become the future mayor of Halifax for 21 years straight, later reminisced to a reporter. I've had calls from Arundel at 2 in the morning, 
He'd be sitting in a New York nightclub with friends when he'd suddenly excuse himself, saying he had to call his ambassador. Then he'd get me on the line, ask me some ridiculous question, like how he was going to get a plane to take a 500-pound tuna back to the States. The only people who didn't get the joke were exactly who you would most expect to not get a joke. It was the Germans. In 1952, a West German publication called Industra Courier announced to surprised Europeans that a part of Canada had declared independence and was now its own sovereign country called the Principality of Outer Baldonia. This kicked off a bizarre time for Outer Baldonia's international relations. The New York Times took that announcement with the kind of calm rationality their opinion writers are known for. Roy Bongartz wrote a piece in 1976 published in that paper that Outer Baldonia was. A sign that the civilized world is getting to be a progressively worse place to live in. I don't think the world will ever be as good again as it is today. When man set foot on the moon, the world reached its high point. We've been going downhill ever since. That German publication had readers in Moscow, which was a part of the Soviet Union. They took note of Outer Baldonia, and they most certainly did not like what they saw. The state-run Moscow Literary Gazette magazine took an exceptionally harsh stance against the new country. The Soviet article was written by Ludmila Chernaya, a highly respected cultural historian, author, and researcher into fascism. She detected in the political philosophy of Outer Baldonia a hint of fascist ideology. She wrote, Mr. Arundel, a typical imperialist businessman, has set himself the aim of turning his subjects into savages. The master of Maldonia granted his subjects the unrestricted right to tell lies, to be rude, the right to not answer questions, the freedom to go unshaven, in a word, the right to not adhere to the ethical and moral laws which have been established by mankind. She worried that based on its monarchy, and its deliberate lack of laws, his banning of outgroups, notably women, that the country was following a trajectory that could lead to Russell Arundel turning not into a prince of princes, but into a Führer. She was hopeful for the mackerel fishermen, who were the original inhabitants of Outer Baldonia, though, writing, Of course, Mr. Arundel will not succeed in turning the peaceful fishermen into cannibals. Much bigger adventures of a similar kind have ended in utter failure. Her entire story was, however, based on a misunderstanding. There weren't actually any original habitants, and there were no mackerel fishermen who lived there before Russell Arundel arrived. The island was uninhabited except for about 20 wild sheep. And, as the ambassador with the long-legged brunette advisor, Ronald Wallace, later reminisced, the kingdom did establish protections for its sheep population. My most poignant memory of the Baldonia was the sign that used to greet visitors to the island paradise that read, Fishermen are not to pet the sheep. But Ludmila Chernea does raise a good point that we kind of glossed over there. Outer Baldonia's Declaration of Independence had completely banned women from his country. Russell Arundel shrugged off the ban to one reporter, simply saying, we wanted the one place in the world where we could get away from them. The move to ban women wasn't necessarily popular with all of the princes, though. 
Arundel mentioned that he had to battle back repeated mutinies from other princes who wanted women to be allowed into Outer Baldonia. Russell Arundel did, however, offer to lift the ban on women in Outer Baldonia just for Ludmila Chernea, although he remarked sarcastically. Getting out of Russia, though, will be her own problem. The Soviet writer ultimately ignored his invitation. Outer Baldonia lodged an official diplomatic protest against the Soviets, which their government also ignored. The story of the Soviet criticism of Outer Baldonia was covered widely in Canada, and for his part, Arundel thought it was pretty funny, remarking to a Canadian press reporter. The Russians caused all the fun by taking it seriously. Arundel only later realized, however, that in this elaborate, multi-layered, international relations joke, that the Russians had in fact not only gotten the joke, but were in turn playing a joke on the West. Much later, in 1977, or should I say OB-29, he reminisced to the Canadian press that One Sunday afternoon, the summer Nixon left office, I was up fishing at my lodge in Maryland, next to Camp David, when the Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, and four Prime Ministers of the Russian Cabinet and their aides invaded my place. They came in and grabbed the fishing rods from our hands, fished up and down the stream, had a ball. We all ended up good friends. Brezhnev himself couldn't come because he had to go somewhere with Nixon. He was, however, realistic about the so-called Russian recognition, remarking, they came to make fun of us. Although all of this does make you begin to ask though, who exactly was Russell Arundel? And how on earth did he have all of this time, money, and high profile connections? Canadian newspapers kept referring to him as a soft drink bottler. While this wasn't exactly inaccurate, it is about as incomplete as describing Elon Musk as a guy who likes cars. Russell Arundel was the founder and president of some obscure little startup called the Pepsi-Cola Bottling Company. You may perhaps have heard of Pepsi. It's one of the world's largest corporations. He certainly had quite the life. According to his later obituary in the Washington Post, he started as a newspaper man in Chicago. In 1920s, he moved to Washington, D.C. to work for a Republican senator. In the 1930s, he was appointed by President Roosevelt to that commission that built Mount Rushmore. That's that mountain in America with all the president's faces on it. And in 1943, he was one of the founders of a little old company called Pepsi. Pepsi had a bit of a problem, though. At the time, the United States was restricting the use of sugar. Or at least partially restricting it. Let's just say that they were restricting the sheer quantities of sugar which we have become accustomed to today. So, in 1947, Russell Arundel made a somewhat fateful decision to give $20,000 to a young new senator from Wisconsin. That senator hadn't done much since being elected other than having a rather scattershot track record of passing somewhat unrelated bills that had nothing in common except that the people who would benefit from them happened to give him a lot of money. Not giving money to his campaign or his re-election, mind you, but to personally gave him money. This young senator from Wisconsin then passed a bill lifting restrictions on sugar use in the United States. 
which I'm sure was just a coincidence. Then this young senator, whose career had been completely unremarkable to that point, turned his mind to his re-election. He reinvented himself as a crusader against so-called un-American activities. That young senator from Wisconsin was Joseph McCarthy, one of the most grotesque and destructive characters in American history. As the newly reinvented Senator McCarthy ripped through American life, leading to hundreds of respected people's lives being destroyed by his lives and causing dozens of others to commit suicide. While this was going on, the American Senate began investigations into Senator McCarthy to see if he was even mentally, ethically, and morally fit for office. And suddenly, Russell Arundel found himself in the spotlight for giving McCarthy that $20,000. According to the Washington Post, Mr. Arundel was questioned by a Senate panel that was investigating the fitness for office of Senator Joseph R. McCarthy. The questioning was about a $20,000 note Mr. Arundel had endorsed for the senator, which he called a minor financial transaction for a friend. While legally, that was probably a prudent defense strategy, rather than admitting he possibly paid bribes to a senator, calling Joseph McCarthy his friend alienated Arundel from, well, just about everyone. He faded into the background of Pepsi, taking a much lower profile and a more hidden role of chair of the board of directors. It was around this time that Russell Arundel disappeared into his flights of fancy that was Outer Baldonia. It didn't even seem like he spent all of that much time on the island itself, but as he remarked to a reporter, I think that way 24 hours a day. As the darkness, which he was at least partially responsible for, for a so-called minor financial transaction, gripped America, Russell Arundel spent his time in his real-life imaginary kingdom. He designed and built whimsical things like outer Baldonian gold watches and cufflinks, flags, seals, coats of arms, at a time when his personal stock was low and when few people wanted much to do with him. Outer Baldonia wasn't a business or anything, mind you. It wasn't even a publicity gimmick or a stunt. It was just one man's curious, personal escape. Russell Arundel continued biding his time in this way, imagining Outer Baldonia, until Senator McCarthy finally drank himself to death. Now that that dark era was over, America collectively chose to forget about McCarthyism, and Arundel found his public image rehabilitated. He never lost his fondness for that little island, though, continuing it until the late 1970s, when he passed away. When becoming a prince of Outer Baldonia, it was stated that the title was hereditary and would be passed on to one's sons. So that meant that the little island kingdom should have gone to Russell Arundel's own heirs. However, as he grew sicker, and sicker with the illness that would soon end his life, Russell Arundel decided to end the Principality of Outer Baldonia. The island itself was an important breeding ground for birds, and for the price of one dollar, he gave it to the Nova Scotia Bird Society. The island remains a bird sanctuary today, and the only signs that it was once the Principality of Outer Baldonia are the stark ruins of the stone walls and the fireplace of the castle that was once the tiny nation's capital. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. 
Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.